0: Okay, so Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is going to be our text. Um, Before we jump into that passage, though, uh, we'll try to understand the context of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So Philippi was located in Macedonia, and Paul's history there began during his second missionary journey about A.D. 50 after seeing a vision calling him to come preach the gospel to the people there. It was in Philippi that God opened Lydia's heart to the gospel that Paul preached. It was in Philippi that Paul and Silas were arrested when Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl. And Philippi was also the place where the jailer and his family were saved after Paul and Silas remained in the jail following the earthquake that left them able to escape. So Paul had labored there among them and led by example and suffering for the sake of bringing them the gospel and planting the church. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while imprisoned in Rome. His reason for writing this letter wasn't because of a serious moral failing like those in the church at Corinth, or because of the acceptance of dangerous heresies like the church at Galatia. Instead, this letter was occasioned by Paul receiving gifts from the Philippian church to sustain him during his imprisonment. The gifts were brought to Paul by Epaphroditus, who also brought greetings and a report from the church. So this is a thank you letter in which Paul also took the opportunity to write of his love for the Philippian Christians, their encouragement to him, and to offer them encouragement and instructions and pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as he said in chapter 3, verse 14. So this is primarily an upbeat letter in which Paul expresses gratitude to God for the church at Philippi and their partnership with him in the gospel. He mentions joy and rejoicing 11 times in this short letter and longs to see them again. In fact, there's only one small hint of a problem in the church in the whole letter. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord and then ask for a true companion to help them. This may shed some light on the calls for unity Paul makes in the first two chapters, including our text in chapter 2. But we'll return to that as we start working through our text this evening. So, if you're not there already, would you turn to Philippians 2 and stand in honor of the reading of God's word when you get there? We'll read verses 1 through 11. It says So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. So in verse 1, Paul isn't doubting that the Philippians are in Christ, have love, participate in the Spirit, or doubting their affection and sympathy. His praise and gratitude for God, to God for them in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, gives off the opposite impression. He prays for them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. He calls them all partakers with him of grace, not only in his imprisonment, but also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And he prays that the love they have will abound more and more. So in the first two verses of chapter 2, Paul's appealing to the graces of God he sees in their lives and calling them on to greater sanctification and unity. The unity Paul urges in verse 2 consists of having both the same mind and the same love. This echoes what he said he longed to see and hear of in in their manner of life in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He said, whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. We can't be sure if Paul's call for unity here is precipitated by a specific problem in the church or if he's simply exhorting them to grow in unity as any evangelist would desire to see his disciples grow in all the graces of God. The text here doesn't tell us for sure, but if the mention of the two women in 4-2 has anything to do with Paul, ri- uh, with what Paul is writing against, I think there's a good chance that these two verses, 2-2 and 4-2, are related. Because although the ESV has the English term of the same mind in 2-2 and the term to agree in 4-2. Paul actually uses the same three-word term for the same mind in both places in Greek, which makes the two verses more likely to seem related. And if this is the case, the disagreement or lack of unity doesn't seem to be over any substantial theological difference. Paul says the two women in chapter 4 both labored side by side with him in the gospel, together with others whose names are in the book of life in three. Besides, if there was a doctrinal dispute, Paul, as a divinely inspired apostle, would have been the one to solve it. It also seems as though Paul would have given the same instructions he gave in Romans 14 or in 1 Corinthians 8-9, if this was a case of conscience and Christian liberty. Although the same principle of acting out of love for others is present in those passages as well, there's no mention of clean or unclean foods observing days associated with the Old Covenant, eating food from the meat market that had been sacrificed to idols, or any other matter of conscience and liberty. So it seems like the situation that led to Paul's exhortations to unity was likely a personal dispute arising from the pursuit of self-interest between people in the church. And Paul took the situation as an opportunity to exhort and instruct the entire congregation on how to conduct themselves and their lives together. Although the Philippian church may not have had any deep theological divides, the unity Paul calls them to was not a shallow or superficial form of unity. He called them to have the same mind and the same love. True, full Christian unity must have both. The world today has adopted a view of love that's antithetical to the scriptural definition. The world tells us that love is accepting, affirming, and even celebrating a person's beliefs, actions, and lifestyle, regardless of whether or not those things are in direct opposition to the Word of God. Sadly, many churches today have adopted a similar view of love and imported it into the Bible. They forget Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Proclaiming the goodness of God's moral law, calling people to repent of sin and turn to Christ to forgiveness, no matter how graciously it's done, is labeled unloving by the world. In pointing out the obvious and rapidly increasing drift away from clear biblical teaching, by many churches, denominations, and once reliable evangelical leaders, is labeled as being divisive by people who were once of the same mind before the culture became so emphatically hostile to certain biblical teachings. Of course, we all must have discernment in recognizing which differences are primary, which are secondary, and which are tertiary, and not disrupt true unity for any reason. But the true unity that Paul calls for is one that involves agreement, being of the same mind about things like the clearly revealed precepts of God's word, who God is, who Christ is, and the message of the gospel. Paul never shied away from calling out and rebuking false teachers or people involved in ongoing serious sin. But when there was doctrinal agreement and progressing sanctification, Paul also called for a... true, and deep unity that involves having the same love, a love for God above all, a love for others as ourselves, and a love that rejoices with the truth. Even in a healthy church that has sound doctrinal belief and whose members are advancing in holiness, the seeds of conflict can arise easily. Our sinful inclinations naturally tend toward the pursuit of our own self interest and our delicate egos find offense when we aren't coddled the way we desire to be. Even the most mature saints must wage war with the self-centered tendencies of the flesh. And in verses 3 and 4 of our text, Paul summarizes the principle for Christian living that leads to full and genuine peace and unity among brothers and sisters in the church. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. These verses are so contrary to our natural inclinations. No one needs to be told to be concerned for themselves. People naturally pursue their own interest. How much time do we spend pursuing and thinking about our own good or what we think will bring us happiness? In comparison, how much time do we spend really contemplating and pursuing the good of others? Do we genuinely rejoice when we see good things happen to others? Or do we more naturally feel tinges of resentment that it didn't happen to us? How often are the things we do motivated by our own self-centered ambitions? And how often do we take offense and hold a grudge because we're puffed up and conceited and believe someone didn't regard us as highly as we regard ourselves. Yet, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or pride, and count others as more important than yourself. And this isn't simply going through the outward motions. It involves changing the way we think. The word translated is count, and count others more significant than yourselves, means to engage in an intellectual process, to think, consider, or regard. So following Paul's instructions here requires changing the way we think about others. But that's easier said than done. How in the world can we do that? And the answer is that we can't, not without God working in us to bring about that change. So drop down the page with me, and let's look at verses 12 and 13. I don't think it's any coincidence that they appear immediately after our text this evening. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now also, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They can work to look to the interest of others, and even work to think differently of others, putting others before themselves and expect to succeed because God is working in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The same God who can take the heart of stone out of a rebellious God-hater, give them a heart of flesh and illuminate the truth of the gospel so that they willingly turn from their sin and serve him in unending gratitude, can also change the way they think about others. And God doesn't simply tell us to act in the interest of others. He gave us the perfect example, which is what Paul points to next. In verse 5, Paul tells them, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, before giving them the ultimate example of humbly putting others first. Most scholars think that what follows in verses 6 through 11 is from a hymn of the New Testament church. It's called the Carmen Christi, meaning the hymn of Christ, and shows how theologically deep the Christology of the early church was. One thing that's impressive about the context in which we find this hymn is that Paul's not talking about the incarnation, deity, humiliation, or exaltation of Christ here. He's exhorting the Philippians to unity by counting each other as more significant than themselves. He reminds them of a hymn they sang to illustrate his point, but simply mentions a few lines that are packed full of deep doctrines without any comment on those doctrines because he expects them to already be familiar with the meaning of the lines he quotes. As we go through these verses, we'll talk a little about what they say about Christ. But keep in mind the overall thrust of these verses in their context, pointing us to Christ is our ultimate example of humility in serving others. Verse six says, "Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." This verse contains two parallel phrases that describe the existence of the pre-incarnate Son. The phrases "in the form of God." And equality with God are both intended to signify the status, glory, and exalted position Christ enjoyed before his incarnation. These verses also tell of Christ's attitude, how he thought about his exalted position of status and glory. The word count here is the same word that we saw in verse 3, where Paul told the Philippians to count others as more significant than themselves. For the sake of others, Christ didn't count his glorious status a thing to be held on to at all cost. And I'll just take a minute here to clarify the meaning of the word translated as something to be grasped, since it's used by false teachers who deny the deity of Christ to confuse the clear meaning of this verse. The confusion arises because this word in Greek has a semantic range, that can signify either something that is grasped as to gain possession of it, or it can signify something that is already in your possession, that's grasped tightly, so as not to lose possession of it or let it go. I've heard and read false teachers claiming that the word in this verse is only saying that Jesus didn't attempt to grab or take the glory of God that he didn't already have possession of and didn't rightly deserve. They claim that the other meaning of the word, to hold on to so as to keep possession, is never found anywhere else in the New Testament, but that's a deceptive claim. This word only appears in the New Testament one time, here. It's found outside of Scripture, signifying something that's held tightly so as not to lose it many times. And I'll give a couple of reasons why those who try to turn this verse on its head to deny the deity of Christ are clearly wrong. First of all, if the word was used here to signify grasping at the glory and status of God that Christ did not already possess and didn't rightfully deserve, Paul's analogy would fall apart. It would be an acknowledgment of a hierarchy among church members. And instead of instructing equal members of the same body to serve each other, and count each other as more significant than themselves, it would be instructing members to humble themselves before their betters, and would be identifying some members as inferiors who should not seek equality with others who were considered superior. Just think about all the confusion and conflict that would result from that teaching as members tried to sort themselves out on the scale of hierarchy and argued about who was superior. Paul's example of Christ's submission would inspire the opposite effect of his instructions in verses 3 and 4. Secondly, if we look at both the immediate context and the clear testimony of the rest of the New Testament, this line from a hymn of the early church is explicitly affirming Christ's equal divine status and glory with the Father prior to his incarnation. In the immediate context, we'll see that verses 10 and 11... Or an adaptation of a claim of Yahweh from Isaiah forty five twenty three about himself. And we'll talk about that more as we get to those verses. Elsewhere in Titus two thirteen, a literal word for word translation would be that Paul identifies Jesus as both the great God of us and Savior. In Romans nine five he calls Jesus God over all. In 2 Peter one, Peter also refers to Jesus as the God of us and Savior. And in John 20.28, 20, the literal word-for-word translation of Thomas's reply to Jesus is that he calls him the Lord of me and the God of me. And in John 1.1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the list of passages affirming the deity of Christ goes on and on. No self-respecting monotheistic Jew, which is what all the apostles were, would ever have made the claims they made about Christ if they didn't believe that he was the one and only true God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Going back to Philippians 2, verse 7 says, "...but emptied himself." by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Just like verse 6 describes the glory and status that Jesus enjoyed before the incarnation by virtue of being in the very form of God, this verse describes what he did to lay aside his status and contains two more parallel phrases that describe the same thing. The phrase taking the form of the servant is parallel to the phrase being born in the likeness of men. The great eternal lawgiver took the form of a servant by being born as a man under the law. As Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This verse also highlights the question, why did God the Son become a man? Or why was the incarnation necessary to accomplish God's plan of redemption? We can only scratch the surface of answering that question this evening, but the answer has a lot to do with Christ's role as the last Adam, the federal head of his people, and the mediator of a new covenant. God created Adam to be the federal head or representative of all his progeny, the human race. He placed him in the garden and entered into the first covenant between God and man with him. Adam broke that covenant and as our representative he plunged us all into condemnation as sinners under the curse of death. But praise God immediately after the fall God made a promise of a future seed of the woman who would do what Adam should have done by crushing the serpent's head. In Romans 5.14, Paul tells us that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And goes on in verses 16 and 17 there to say, The free gift, speaking of the righteousness of Christ imputed to his people, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more with those who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, he says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." In the Gospel of Luke, immediately before telling of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Adam and ending with the words, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Only three verses later Jesus is being addressed by the devil with the words, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Luke wanted his readers to see that the seed of the woman had finally arrived, and where the first Son of God had failed when tempted by the devil, the true Son of God would succeed. Like Adam, Jesus faced the serpent's temptation, but unlike Adam, Jesus wasn't in the garden paradise surrounded with everything he needed. Jesus faced the devil in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. His body would have been on the verge of shutting down from starvation. But still, Jesus stood firm on the word of God in response to every temptation and sent the devil away in defeat. Where Adam, as our federal head, failed and brought us under the curse of death, both physical and spiritual, Christ, as our federal head, conquered and brought us eternal life. As Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen twenty and twenty one, for as by by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As we move on to verse eight in our text in Philippians two, we can continue to answer the question of why Christ had to leave his position of heavenly glory and take on the form of a servant to save his people. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To fulfill his role as the last Adam and federal head of his people, Jesus had to do more than resist the temptations of the devil one time. Where Adam, in all of his progeny, had broken covenant with God by transgressing his law, Jesus had to keep covenant with God by perfectly fulfilling the law of God on behalf of his progeny, who is us, who by the grace of God have repented of our sins and placed our hope in the perfect work of Christ. As we saw in Galatians 4 or 5 earlier, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And just like Jesus' temptation was far more extreme than Adam's, the law that Jesus was born under as an old covenant Jew was far more extreme than the law Adam was under at creation. Yet, Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of that law perfectly as our representative. However, living a perfect life on our behalf to impute a righteous status to us was not enough. As fallen sons and daughters of Adam under the curse of death and as rebel sinners having repeatedly transgressed God's law ourselves, we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. We were children of wrath with a record of debt that we could never fully pay on our own. For this reason, Jesus' obedience extended beyond keeping the law on our behalf. It extended all the way to the point of death, even the shameful death of hanging as a public spectacle on a cross under the curse of God. Jesus gave up his status of glory in heaven and took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by obediently fulfilling the law and keeping the covenant on our behalf. And then he humbled himself even further by bearing the covenant curses for lawbreaking that we deserved. At the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus also became the mediator of a new and better covenant. He inaugurated a new covenant with his blood based on better promises where he, as our covenant mediator, has fulfilled all the conditions of the law and taken all the curses of the old covenant for us. You see, the lines of this hymn contain deep and precious truths that should exhort every Christian to lives of service. But it gets even better. Let's continue in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After completing the job he came to do, Jesus was vindicated. He rose from the dead in demonstration of his victory over sin and death. And the prayer he prayed in John 17:5 was answered when he ascended back to his rightful place of exaltation and glory, enthroned in heaven. He had prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus returned to his position of glory. But he returned not only as God the Son, but now as the God-man. He remains incarnate, having a resurrected and glorified body. And he sits on his throne interceding on our behalf. And he's given us the promise that those that are his will also be resurrected and glorified with him. Let's return to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. Christ's life of perfect obedience on our behalf earned us a reward we could never have earned ourselves. At his return, we too will receive resurrected, incorruptible, glorified physical bodies and will dwell eternally with him in the glorious new creation. One last observation in our text is the glorified position of Jesus after his ascension. Just as he remained fully God during the incarnation, and remains fully human in his ascension and glorification. As Acts one eleven says, he will return in the same way he ascended. So he remains both fully God and fully man. Verses 10 and 11 point to Christ's full divinity in his resurrected glorified body by inserting the name of Jesus into the claim of Yahweh intended to distinguish him as the only true God in Isaiah 45, 23. And I'll I'll begin reading in verse 21 of Isaiah 45 so we can hear the claim that's being made in these verses. It says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance." And the use of this verse in Philippians two ten and eleven becomes even clearer if we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament that the New Testament church used and the New Testament authors quoted from most often. There, instead of saying every tongue shall swear allegiance, it says every tongue shall confess to God. We also should remember that what is confessed of Jesus in Philippians two eleven that Jesus Christ is Lord, using the word "curios," there, is the same word that's used in the Septuagint in Isaiah 45 and throughout the Old Testament for Yahweh, the proper covenant name of God. So there's no consistent way of understanding these verses as anything other than a full affirmation of the deity of Christ. But now returning to the overall theme of the 11 verses we've worked through this evening, how should we respond to them? And what does true and healthy unity look like in a local church? If we answered the second question first, Scripture describes true unity as being united in the truth of God's Word, being of the same mind, to use Paul's words. It isn't a superficial unity that avoids any form of disagreement at all costs, including sacrificing clearly revealed truths of God's Word. It's unity in the truth, not in spite of the truth. But it's also a unity that doesn't let personal preferences lead to conflict. Different personality types shouldn't co- should complement each other, not clash with each other in the church. Brothers and sisters in the church should also not be easily offended by each other. Intentional offenses to a brother or sister have no place among those who have been forgiven of their offenses against God. And the desire to intentionally hurt or offend a brother or sister in the same body of Christ is sinful and shameful. Having said that, though, the desire to find offense where none is intended is also sinful. In the world, offense is often found when none is intended, and conflict is stirred up because offense is searched for in every word that comes out of a person's mouth. True love hopes for the best in others and doesn't assume bad intentions being behind the benign or even ambiguous statements of others. The very idea of unintentional microaggressions has no place in the church. Instead, True unity looks like each member of the body caring for the other members, appreciating their gifts, which are given by God for the good of all the members, and seeking to use their own gifts to serve others. To answer the first question of how we should respond to the passage we've gone through this evening, Paul's instructions are clear. We need to think and do. We need to think of or consider others as more significant than ourselves and we need to look to or take care of the needs of others as well as our own. This may not always be easy, but if we turn to God in prayer and trust him to fulfill his promises, he will work in us both to will and to work according to his will. And if we need inspiration, we have a perfect example and motivator in Christ. Consider who he is. Consider his exalted status and glory prior to the incarnation. Think about what he gave up to reconcile us to himself. Think of what the almighty God of the universe subjected himself to and endured on behalf of undeserving sinners like us who were in active rebellion against him. Think about that the next time you feel justified in not loving or serving others in the church because of some perceived slight, where you feel you weren't shown the honor you desired. Has anyone here ever shown God the full honor he rightfully deserves from us as his creatures? As people who have been forgiven so much, Who are the recipients of such amazing grace who look forward to an inheritance that was earned for us by the condescension of someone so much greater than us let's never count ourselves as more significant than others let's follow the example of christ by being obedient to the command of god do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Lord, we ask that you would just be with us this evening as we leave, that your Spirit would lead us in meditating on in thinking over the words that we found in scripture tonight in considering the command that you've given us in considering others more significant than ourselves and that you would lead us by your spirit in applying those words to our lives Lord may we here at Foundation be characterized by our love for you above all by our love for each other, and love for those around us in our lives, Lord. Lord, we just ask that you would be glorified in our lives, in the love we have for each other, and just pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.